Section 19 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 3. Edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Electricity, Chapter 3. Fundamental Discoveries. There are in all sciences some discoveries which seem to open vast fields for exploration and which appear suddenly to increase the power of mankind in electrical science the benefits conferred by the discoveries of volta and galvani davy arago ampere faraday seebeck maxwell and hertz are only just beginning to be realized Volta and Galvani started the investigation of electric currents, and today the Earth is full of applications of them, each one the servant of a human brain. Each day sees a new device based upon them, and each application presents them in a new light, which again leads to another useful appliance of the principles involved. One hundred years ago, Men were not so well organized for scientific research as they are at present, and it may seem strange that such a simple discovery as electromagnetic induction should have taken so long to develop after the production of electric currents. It must be remembered, however, that organization was loose, not bound tightly together as it is now, when mankind is, as it were, united into one large concentrated brain. If a discovery is made at the present time, the whole world knows of it in a few days, and thousands of men stand ready to apply it to all kinds of industries, and many men can bring their vast experience to the immediate aid of the discoverer, so that the discovery is quickly perfected. All this power of self-improvement is owed, however, to those whose work have united men so closely. Scientific research has developed into a business. Large companies have gathered together the best brains of the world. Money and conveniences are placed at their disposal. The needs of industry are presented to them and are quickly filled. The scientific brain is kept in constant touch with the wants of life, and there is at last accomplished that union of the scientist and the man of the world, the one with needs, the other with the means of fulfilling them, that was lacking in the earlier days. There are in general two classes of scientists. One is possessed of a mathematical mind, delighting in the abstract solution of a problem and caring not whether the result turns out one way or another. He is concerned, rather, with the proof of the similarity of processes than with any difference of detail. To the man with the mechanical mind, however, the detection of differences is all-important. He finds his pleasure in observing differences in phenomena by the process of experiment, and his whole idea is to obtain a definite and useful result. Both classes of men are necessary. Maxwell developed a beautiful mathematical theory of great comprehensiveness, but the proofs waited for the experimental demonstrations of Hertz. The groundwork of the science is, however, usually developed through that property of so few minds, 
the power of observation. The discovery of the electric current was an event. Galvani, an eminent doctor and professor of anatomy at the University of Bologna, was one evening in the year 1780 busy in his laboratory with some friends, making experiments relating to a nervous fluid in animals. On a table where there was an electric machine used for the experiments, there had been placed by chance some recently skinned frogs intended to make broth of. One of Galvani's assistants, says Pierre Sue in his Histoire du Galvanisme, casually put the point of his instrument near the internal cruel nerves of one of the animals. Immediately all the muscles of the limbs seemed to be agitated with strong convulsions. Galvani's wife was present. She was struck with the novelty of the phenomenon. She thought she saw that it occurred just at the moment when a spark was taken from the electric machine. She warned her husband, who hastened to verify this curious fact, and he recognized that the muscular contractions of the frog took place, in fact, every time that a spark appeared, but ceased while the machine was at rest. This observation was the beginning of many experiments with the doctor by which he tried to prove the identity of the nervous fluid of animals with the supposed electric fluid. In 1786, he again continued researches of this kind. Being anxious one day, says Amadi Guillama in his Electricity and Magnetism, to see whether the influence of atmospheric electricity on the muscles of frogs would be the same as that produced in machines, he had for that purpose hung up a number of skinned frogs' legs on the balcony of a terrace of his house. He hooked the hind legs to the iron of the balcony by a copper wire which passed under the lumbar nerves. Galvani remarked with surprise that every time that the feet touched the balcony, the frogs' limbs were contracted with quick convulsions, though at that moment there were no signs of a stormy cloud and therefore no particular electric influence of the atmosphere. These facts suggested to Galvani the idea that there existed an electricity belonging to animals, inherent in their organization, that this electricity, secreted by the brain, resides specially in the nerves, by which it is communicated to the entire body that the principal reservoirs of this electricity are the muscles, each fiber of which may be considered as having two surfaces, and possessing by that means the two electricities, positive and negative, each one of them representing besides, so to speak, a small Leyden jar, of which the nerves are the conductors. Hence the comparisons he makes between the muscular contractions in frogs and other animals and the commotions produced by the discharge of a Leyden jar. Alexander Volta, then professor of natural philosophy at Pavia, repeated Galvani's experiments, but he very soon modified his explanations. According to Volta, the electricity developed was of the same nature as that which an electric apparatus produces. It is the contact between dissimilar metals which gives place to the production of electricity one of the metals being charged with a positive, the other with a negative electrification. These charges combine in traversing the middle conductor of muscles and nerves. Then arose between the two celebrated philosophers a discussion, 
a struggle, honorable to both and above all profitable to science, which thereby became enriched by a multitude of new facts. The invention of the marvelous apparatus which received the name of Voltaic Pile at last caused the theory of the Professor of Pavia to prevail, though Galvani's hypothesis on the existence of a sort of animal electricity is now recognized as partly true. On the other hand, Volta's ideas have been somewhat modified. The outcome of these contentions was the invention of Volta's pile first made in 1800. Here, for the first time, was produced a means of generating a steady and continuous flow of electric current. Volta's construction was as follows. Discs of copper, zinc, and flannel were cut out and arranged in a pile in the order copper, flannel, zinc. And this order was successively repeated, the flannel being first dipped in sulfuric acid so that its function was merely to connect the copper and zinc by the acid. This arrangement gave a feeble electromotive force between the elements of each set, which increased when one connection was made at the lower end of the pile and the other was moved toward the top. Volta's idea of the action of the pile was, however, not as it is known today. He believed that the source of the electromotive force was at the contact of the copper and the zinc disks, and that the moistened cloth served merely as a means of connecting them, whereas the real seat of this force is at the contact of the acid with the zinc. This discovery of Volta's was the starting point of many investigations, in which the metals and the liquids were tried in all sorts of combinations, many of which were quite successful, and soon batteries were developed which were capable of furnishing quite powerful currents. For 60 years, these batteries were the only source of current available for conducting the brilliant experiments of that period. As soon as a source of current was obtainable, it was natural to ascertain the effects of this current on various bodies. One of the first of these was that of Carlyle and Nicholson in 1800 on the decomposition of water, having passed the current of a voltaic pile formed of disks of silver and zinc through water, they noticed that at the end of the copper wire, which came from the negative pole of the pile, some gaseous bubbles were given off, which they ascertained to be hydrogen. The other wire became rapidly oxidized. On substituting for copper platinum, which is not attacked by oxygen, bubbles of this latter gas were given off in the same way from the positive wire. That is to say, when the two platinum wires were used, oxygen was given off in bubbles from the surface of the wire by which the current entered the water. The hydrogen gas was at the same time given off in bubbles from the surface of the wire by which the current left the water. The next fact of great importance was brought to light 20 years after the discovery of Volta's pile by Orsted, professor in the University of Copenhagen, this accomplished savant found that the electric current acted on the magnetic needle. For a long time, says Guillemont, there had been a suspicion of the existence of a relation between magnetic phenomena and electricity. People had remarked the occurrence of perturbations by the mariner's compass on ships struck by lightning, or when their masts presented the phenomenon known by the name of St. Elmo's fire. 
it was known that discharges of batteries of Leyden jars affected magnetic needles placed near the apparatus. But these facts only gave vague ideas on the relation mentioned above. In 1820, the year after that in which Orsted made his discovery, Ampere studied and described the laws of this action, and showed besides that the current themselves acted on currents, and later Arago, Davy, and Sturgeon discovered the magnetizing of steel and soft iron under the influence of the current from a battery. The experiments of these men were so many points of departure for a multitude of new experiments which in a short time completely changed the aspect of this part of the science by showing that magnetism and electricity are different manifestations of the same cause. Orsted expressed his discovery by saying that a current acts in a revolving manner on a magnetic needle. He does not, however, seem to have understood that the electric current carried about it a magnetic field, and that it was the mutual action of this field and of the magnetism in the needle that produced the deflection. Orsted expressed the law of the deflection as follows. When an electric current acts on the magnetic needle, the north pole of the needle is urged toward the left of the current. Ampere was the first to use Orsted's discovery to measure the intensity of currents, but to Schweiger and to Pogendorf, working independently, is due the happy thought of multiplying the action of electricity on the magnetizing needle so as to detect the existence of the feeblest current. This instrument, then termed the multiplier, is now called the galvanometer, and its importance as a factor in the further development of the science is seldom appreciated. From this developed the Thompson galvanometer, in which the needles were made extremely small and light, and having a mirror attached, upon which a beam of light was thrown, and the reflected beam was made to pass over a scale. The galvanometer was thereby furnished with a long weightless pointer, whereby the smallest motion of the needle was multiplied many times, and extremely small currents could be detected. In September 1820, a little while after the discoveries of Orsted and Ampere, Arago made the following experiment. He plunged into a mass of iron filings a copper wire which was connected to the two poles of a battery. On drawing out the wire, without interrupting the current, he found it to be covered over its whole surface with particles of filings arranged transversely. As soon as the current was broken, the iron particles became detached from the copper and fell down. To assure himself that this was really temporary magnetism and not the attraction of an electrified body for light bodies, he substituted for the iron filings a non-magnetic substance, such as copper dust or powdered glass, and found that the phenomenon did not take place. On placing needles of soft iron and then of tempered steel, very near the copper wire and across it, he saw that the action of the current transformed them into magnetic needles, having their south poles always to the left of the current, a result in conformity with the earliest experiments of Orsted. Shortly afterward, Arago and Ampere noticed that magnetism of iron or steel 
is developed much more energetically by placing the needle inside a spiral coil of wire through which the current flows. This was the origin of the electromagnet, which was later developed by Sturgeon and Henry. The discovery of the greatest value to electrical science was that made by Faraday in 1831. He reasoned that if magnetism could be produced by the action of the electric current, the converse should also be true, and after some experimenting he was successful in demonstrating it. An interesting account of his experiments is given below, being an extract from Professor Tyndall's Faraday as a Discoverer. In 1831, we have Faraday at the climax of his intellectual strength, 40 years of age, stored with knowledge, and full of original power. Through reading, lecturing, and experimenting, he had become thoroughly familiar with electrical science. He saw where light was needed and expansion possible. The phenomena of ordinary electric induction belonged, as it were, to the alphabet of his knowledge. He knew that under ordinary circumstances, the presence of an electrified body was sufficient to excite, by induction, an unelectrified body. He knew that the wire which carried an electric current was an electrified body, and still that all attempts had failed to make it excite in other wires a state similar to its own. What was the reason of this failure? Faraday could never work from the experiments of others however clearly described. He knew well that from every experiment issues a kind of radiation, luminous in different degrees to different minds, and he hardly trusted himself to reason upon an experiment that he had not seen. In autumn of 1831, he began to repeat the experiments with electric currents, which up to that time had produced no positive result, and here for the sake of younger inquirers, if not for the sake of us all, it is worthwhile to dwell for a moment on a power which Faraday possessed in an extraordinary degree. He united vast strength with perfect flexibility. His momentum was that of a river, which combines weight and directness with the ability to yield to the flexures of its bed. The intentness of his vision in any direction did not, apparently, diminish his power of perception in other directions. And when he attacked a subject, expecting results, he had the faculty of keeping his mind alert, so that results different from those which he expected should not escape him through preoccupation. He began his experiments on the induction of electric currents by composing a helix of two insulated wires, which were wound side by side round the same wooden cylinder. One of these wires he connected with a voltaic battery of ten cells, and the other with a sensitive galvanometer. When connection with the battery was made, and while the current flowed, no effect, whatever, was observed at the galvanometer. But he never accepted an experimental result until he had applied to it the utmost power at his command. He raised his battery from ten cells to one hundred and twenty cells, but without avail. The current flowed calmly through the battery wire without producing, during its flow, any sensible result upon the galvanometer. During its flow. And this was the time when an effect was expected. 
but here Faraday's power of lateral vision, separating, as it were, from the line of expectations, came into play. He noticed that a feeble movement occurred when he made contact with the battery, that the needle would afterward return to its former position and remain quietly there unaffected by the flowing current. At the moment, however, when the circuit was interrupted, the needle again moved, and in a direction opposed to that observed of the completion of the circuit. This result and others of a similar kind led him to the conclusion, in his own words, that the battery current through the one wire did in reality induce a similar current through the other, but that it continued for an instant only and partook more of the nature of the electric wave from a common Leyden jar than of the current from a voltaic battery. The momentary currents thus generated were called induced currents, while the current which generated them was called the inducing current. It was immediately proved that the current generated at making the circuit was always opposed in direction to its generator, while that developed on the rupture of the circuit coincided in direction with the inducing current. It appears, says Tyndall, as if the current on its first rush through the primary wire sought a purchase in the secondary one, and by a kind of kick impelled backward through the latter an electric wave, which subsided as soon as the primary current was fully established. Faraday for a time believed that the secondary wire, though quiescent when the primary current had been once established, was not in its natural condition, its return to that condition being declared by the current observed at breaking the circuit. He called this hypothetical state of the wire the electrotonic state. He afterward abandoned this hypothesis, but seemed to return to it in afterlife. The term electrotonic is also preserved by Professor Dubois-Raymond to express a certain electric condition of the nerves, and Professor Clerk Maxwell has ably defined and illustrated the hypothesis in the tenth volume of the Transactions of the Cambridge Philosophical Society. The mere approach of a wire forming a closed curve to a second wire, through which a voltaic current flowed, was then shown by Faraday to be sufficient to arouse in the neutral wire an induced current. The withdrawal of the wire also generated a current having the same direction as the inducing current. Those currents existed only during the time of approach or withdrawal. And when neither the primary nor the secondary wire was in motion, no matter how close their proximity might be, no induced current was generated. Faraday, remarks Tyndall, has been called a purely inductive philosopher. A great deal of nonsense is, I fear, uttered in this land of England about induction and deduction. Some profess to befriend the one, some the other, while the real vocation of an investigator, like Faraday, consists in the incessant marriage of both. He was at this time full of the theory of Ampere, and it cannot be doubted that numbers of his experiments were executed merely to test his deductions from that theory. Starting from the discovery of Orsted, the celebrated French philosopher had shown that all the phenomena of magnetism then known 
might be reduced to the mutual attractions and repulsions of electric currents. Magnetism had been produced from electricity, and Faraday, who all his life long entertained a strong belief in such reciprocal actions, now attempted to affect the evolution of electricity from magnetism. Round a welded iron ring, he placed two distinct coils of covered wire, causing the coils to occupy opposite halves of the ring. Connecting the ends of one of the coils with a galvanometer, he found that the moment the ring was magnetized, by sending a current through the other coil, the galvanometer needle whirled round four or five times in succession. The action, as before, was that of a pulse which vanished immediately. On interrupting the current, a whirl of the needle in the opposite direction occurred. It was only during the time of magnetization or demagnetization that these effects were produced. The induced currents declared a change of condition only, and they vanished the moment the act of magnetization or demagnetization was complete. The effects obtained with the welded ring were also obtained with straight bars of iron. Whether the bars were magnetized by the electric current or were excited by the contact of permanent steel magnets, induced currents were always generated during the rise and during the subsidence of the magnetism. The use of iron was then abandoned, and the same effects were obtained by merely thrusting a permanent steel magnet into a coil of wire. A rush of electricity through the coil accompanied the insertion of the magnet. An equal rush in the opposite direction accompanied its withdrawal. The precision with which Faraday describes these results and the completeness with which he defined the boundaries of his facts are wonderful. The magnet, for example, must not be passed quite through the coil, but only half through. For if passed wholly through, the needle, it is stopped as by a blow. And then he shows how this blow results from a reversal of the electric wave in the helix. He next operated with the powerful permanent magnet of the Royal Society and obtained with it, in exalted degree, all the foregoing phenomena. And now he turned the light of these discoveries upon the darkest physical phenomena of that day. Arago had discovered in 1824 that a disk of non-magnetic metal had the power of bringing a vibrating magnetic needle suspended over it rapidly to a rest, and that, on causing the disk to rotate, the magnetic needle rotated along with it. When both were quiescent, there was not the slightest measurable attraction or repulsion exerted between the needle and the disc. Still, when in motion, the disc was competent to drag after it not only a light needle, but a heavy magnet. The question had been probed and investigated with admirable skill by both Arago and Ampere, and Poussin had published a theoretic memoir on the subject. But no cause could be assigned for so extraordinary an action. It had also been examined in this country by two celebrated men, Mr. Babbage and Sir John Herschel, but it still remained a mystery. Faraday always recommended the suspension of judgment in cases of doubt. I have always admired, he says, 
the prudence and philosophical reserve shown by Mizura Arago in resisting the temptations to give a theory of the effect he had discovered, so long as he could not devise one which was perfect in its application, and in refusing to assent to the imperfect theories of others. Now, however, the time for theory had come. Faraday saw mentally the rotating disk under the operation of the magnet, flooded with his induced currents, and from the known laws of interaction between currents and magnets, he hoped to deduce the motion observed by Arago. That hope he realized, showing by actual experiment that when his disk rotated, currents passed through it, their position and direction being such as must, in accordance with the established laws of electromagnetic action, produced the observed rotation, introducing the edge of his disk between the poles of the large horseshoe magnet of the Royal Society, and connecting the axis and the edge of the disk, each by a wire with a galvanometer, he obtained, when the disk was turned round, a constant flow of electricity. The direction of the current was determined by the direction of the motion, the current being reversed when the rotation was reversed. He now states the law which rules the production of currents in both disks and wires, and in so doing uses for the first time a phrase which has since become famous. When iron filings are scattered over a magnet, the particles of iron arrange themselves in certain determined lines called magnetic curves. In 1831, Faraday for the first time called these curves lines of magnetic force, and he showed that to produce induced currents, neither approach to nor withdrawal from a magnetic source or center or pole was essential, but that it was only necessary to cut appropriately the lines of magnetic force. Faraday's first paper on magnetoelectric induction which is here briefly condensed, was read before the Royal Society on the 24th of November, 1831. Faraday delighted in investigation for the sake of the processes themselves. He had no inclination to follow up his discoveries with their practical application. The attitude of his mind is best described in his own words. I have rather, he writes in 1831, been desirous of discovering new facts and new relations dependent on magneto-electric induction than of exalting the force of those already obtained, being assured that the latter would find their full development hereafter. End of section 19